You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The world is filled with many questions, such as, did giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans, and that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world? How serious even is climate change, and when should we start building our rafts? Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Bruna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery Mystery of Everything, Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents... Look, I'm not racist, but... You look good for your age. She was asking for it. You're crazy. That's so gay. Have you ever wondered why certain language has the power to offend? It's often difficult to recognize the veiled racism, sexism, ageism, and other isms that hide in our everyday language. Monster Talk co-host Karen Stolzno's new book, On the Offensive, sheds light on the derogatory phrases, insults, slurs, stereotypes, tropes, and more that make up discrimination in language. Each chapter addresses a different area of prejudice, race and ethnicity, gender identity, sexuality, religion, health and disability, physical appearance, and age. Drawing on hot-button topics and real-life case studies and delving into the history of offensive terms, a vivid picture of modern discrimination in language emerges. By identifying offensive language both overt and hidden, past and present, this book uncovers vast amounts about our own attitudes, beliefs, and biases and reveals exactly how and why words can offend. You can find your copy of On the Offensive through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or your local bookseller. Monster Talk can be supported by listeners like you at patreon.com forward slash monster talk or by leaving positive reviews on iTunes and other podcasting sites. Learn more at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Thanks to all of you who are supporting us in this way. We are humbled and grateful and hope that we always live up to or exceed your expectations. It's midnight. 
We go out in darkness to hide our sins. On this particular night, here, at a quiet rural crossroad, our sinner is already there, standing in the shadows. He's waiting on a stranger. We don't know the stranger's true name, but we know his reputation. We know this story too. Maybe you heard that feller waiting. He's called Robert Johnson. Or maybe you heard that the name Johnson was right, but the first name was Tommy. But truth be told, the core of this legend is much older. Is it envy that makes us think that such talent is ill-gotten? Are these stories supposed to be literally true or are they mythic? And when we wish in our hearts that it was us that had such skill, but then we do nothing to practice towards such goals? Who is it that's really begging for a miracle, however questionable the source? Take comfort. It would probably be horrible to have such talent without the effort, knowing all the time that every compliment or clap was an empty lie, and also knowing, sooner or later, that this bargain has a debt associated with it, and each day brings you closer to the due date. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Culture is a river with many tributaries. Finding the source of anything can mean traveling far upstream, through meandering paths, often with no guarantee that the thing you found is even really the primary source. For what does source even mean when the water is long gone and even the riverbanks have moved? In his book, Season of the Witch, author Peter Biebergall takes you on an historic journey from the mingling of African and European religious traditions in the old American South, to the influences of theosophy on 1960s rock, to the hints of Illuminati conspiracy behind leading musical artists of today. It's a journey into the mysterious and the mystical, but all the while firmly rooted in reality and viewed through a lens focused by academic research, experience, and cultural studies. But do me a favor, don't skip the show notes on this one. 
Peter references hundreds of songs and bands in his book, and I asked him during the interview about the possibility of a Spotify playlist to reference while reading the book. It turned out that he had already started one, and I'm going to link to it. But I also added a bunch of links myself and some notes, and I vetted all those through Peter. So you'll find there's a lot of reading and listening in the show notes, and we hope you'll find the time to have a look and listen beyond just the episode. Okay, without further ado, as my daughter Sophie once said, hit it, boys! Monster Talk. All right, today's guest is Peter Biebergall. Peter studied religion and culture at Harvard Divinity School and previously visited us to discuss his excellent book, Strange Frequencies. And in that discussion, we also brought up this book, Season of the Witch, which is a book about the connections between rock music and the occult. And we said we'd have him back. And look, we did it. We lived up to our word. Fantastic. So, so welcome back to Monster Talk, Peter Bieber. Thank you so much for having me back. I'm excited. Good to have you on the show I, I again. I recall our last conversation very fondly. We've, we've brought you back on the show, as uh, Blake just said, to talk about your book, Season of the Witch, How the Occult Saved Rock and Roll. So can you tell us a little bit about this book? Sure. I mean, in some ways, this is the book I was sort of planning on writing since I was seven and didn't even realize it, uh, <laughs> partly because and, and I described this moment in the in the book of going into my brother's room when he wasn't home and looking through his albums. The albums I had in my room were the Bay City Rollers and I had my Snoopy vs. the Red Baron 45 on my Fisher-Price you know, record player. But my brother had this whole other weird, wild range of music that sometimes he would scare me with. I actually – there were moments when he would invite me into his room just to play the Beatles Revolution 9 to freak me out. And not explain to me what it was or what I was listening to. But I knew that I was fascinated by something that was in this collection. of, And so he was out one day and I decided I was going to take the chance and go into his room when he wasn't there. And poured over these albums. And I remember the moment of opening up the gatefold album cover of David Bowie's Diamond Dogs. And if you're familiar with that album, when you open it up... David, there's a painting of David Bowie in this sort of half dog, half man, Lincolnthropic horror. And there's something that's both, you know, erotic and grotesque about this image. And then the music that accompanied it, I, I just, even in that moment, felt that there was some sort of secret language here that I was really drawn to. And, you know, of course, that opened up the world to me of sort of 70s rock and roll. So David Bowie, Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, even Alice Cooper. And and there was this sort of mythos around these bands that for me at the time, you know, I didn't have the Internet to look anything up, obviously. So it was all dependent on the images on the albums, the lyrics of the songs, the sort of stories that my brother would tell me. I remember the day, in fact, when he sat and took out all his Beatles records and showed me the, quote, clues of the proof that Paul McCartney was actually dead. Right? And I knew it wasn't true. And yet 
there was something about it that still felt true in this other uncanny way. And so that really just started for me a love affair of – I mean obviously none of this would matter if the music was, wasn't any good, right? So in the end, it's really just about how amazing this music is and the impact that it had on culture. Mm-hmm. And as I continued to sort of you know, just make listening and, and loving rock and roll so much of my life, to start to understand that – Despite whether or not any of the stuff was true about it, whether people really were worshiping the devil or if you played an album backwards, you would conjure Satan into your wood panel basement. But that even the even the mythologies around that had an impact on pop culture and vice versa, the ways in which pop culture at the time was having its own impact on rock and roll and the musicians themselves and that along with i mean you have to remember it's sort of to the time when i was really discovering this was also the time in the 70s when there was really this um amazing explosion of pop culture interest in monsters and the re, you know resurgence of the um Universal and Hammer Horror films on Creature Double Feature on you know the UHF channels that we used to have, Creepy and Eerie magazine, and then all the sort of devil centric movies and television shows. I remember there was a made for TV movie called um, Devil Dog the Hound from Hell, where these kids worship Satan in their attic, and he took the form of you know the family dog. And so this was sort of the – this was the atmosphere in which not only was I listening to this music but in which this music was being made and delivered to the consumer. So it's – for me, I started to see that it was – it was really hard to separate these things. And so I decided that it made sense to sort of try to just unpack all this and, and explore you know, what it meant Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I'm I'm curious. Uh, did you ever see there was a, a documentary I saw years ago? It was a kind of uh, lost tape style discovered documentary, and I think it was uh, it was about the the Paul is dead urban legend, and it was supposedly the the truth of everything that happened according to George Harrison, and it just goes on for hours and hours, and it's just really crazy. All of the theories. Have you ever heard? I, I can't remember who. No, I, I haven't. And is it the? Is it the? I mean, I know that in some ways, the Beatles, like many other bands, like to sort of talk up both sides of their mouth about these kinds of things. You know, yes. Did they yeah. put the clues on the albums, or did? And knowing that people saw them there, they didn't wholly deny it, but it helped to sell records, right? So Absolutely, there's always yeah. this kind it of give and take mystique. with that. Exactly. Yeah. But right. uh, I think with this one, it was uh, I, just before George Harrison died that he revealed everything about how Paul was dead. But it was just the, the one of the craziest documentaries I think I've ever seen. So I, I don't know where I found it, but it just went on for hours. And a group of us watched us, and it was just every single Beatles urban legend you could think of. <laughs> Good fun if you're a big fan like me. <laughs> and it seems the more famous you were, the more people tried to attach 
these things to you because maybe it was still understood that fame came by way of some pact with the devil, Mm -hmm. right? Which (laughs) goes back to all the earliest legends about, um, you know, the supposed selling your soul at the crossroads to learn how to play the guitar or to learn how to sing. we'll, We'll get into that. I really enjoyed the book a lot. I, I, I thought it was really deep and poetic. Thank you. It was much better than I expected. I, I think this could have been the kind of topic where someone just writes a listicle, basically, of all the rock legends. And you probably could have sold a lot of books that way, but you, you did much more than that. And I, I, I love that. And thus, I sold no books. No, and, that's, <laughs> and that's your punishment. No, no this is true. Like, I, I read the book over like three nights. And I was finishing it up last night and I just stayed up. I just could, I was like, oh, I've got to finish this. And I got really frustrated because I was on the Kindle and you know how it shows you your progress. And I was like at like 64, 65% done. I was like, oh my God, I really wanted to finish this before we had to do the interview. So I'll just finish it tomorrow at work whenever I can during my breaks. I get up in the morning and there's only four pages left. The rest is bibliography because this thing has so much citations in it. It's great. Um, but did you, to me, it felt a little bit like as a reader, I'm Dante and you're Virgil guiding me into the world of the, the occult's influence on rock. So that was really nice. So my question is, um, did the book turn out the way you expected it? Did you actually intend it to be this in depth? Well, it's a funny, I mean, that's, I think one of the things that I love about, I mean, really the thing that I love about writing is, and I'll quote. Flannery O'Connor here who once said, you know, she doesn't know what she thinks until she's writing it. And this was the kind of book where I was sort of writing and doing the research as I went along because that I wasn't always sure what I would find. And so when I would have the idea or was hoping something would be true and then I would find an interview with one of the musicians in an old rock and roll magazine that, that sort of supported the idea was there were just a series of moments of these eurekas along the way. <laughs> you know, you sort of start off thinking, I mean, again, because for me, you know, I'm not going into this. I mean, in some ways, the the subtitle is a misnomer because I'm not I'm not trying to in, in any way do away with sort of accepted history of rock and roll or to say that. Um, if there weren't these influences, you know, things would be that different. But in fact, maybe they maybe they really would be. I mean, it's hard to imagine what that music would have been like if it wasn't for the ways in which these ideas and 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 the ways in which the occult sort of ignite the imagination on 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 multiple sides of of this. And how it impacts the music. So let's like the example I like to use is you have a kid, he's in his basement, he's listening to his heavy metal record, he has an upside that has an upside down pentagram on it. And for him or her, they get to feel in this moment like they're actually tapping into some power that's making them feel like their sort of rebellious instincts are are right on and that, you know there really is some secret sort of message here that they can somehow tap into and add a little pot to that. And maybe you just got finished playing Dungeons and Dragons and it all is a piece of their imagination. And then you have their parents upstairs that are thinking, worried about the music that their kids are listening to. 
because it might be that Satan is going to possess their souls. But then on the other hand, you have the record executives that thought, hey, wouldn't it be cool to put an upside down pentagram on this album cover? <laughs> right. And then maybe you have the musicians themselves that, you know, spent a couple of weeks reading Aleister Crowley and maybe they thought it was cool, but it's not like they're going out to actually in that moment try to cast spells. It just becomes sort of part of what charges them in that moment when they're playing music and thinking about those ideas. Right. So there's not like there's this single monolithic thing called the occult that's happening in that moment. There's this symbol that somehow just keys so perfectly into our imaginations and then just spreads out into all these interesting ways for all the people that are engaging with this record. We usually like to start with a definition. So for the purposes of your book, how did you define rock music or rock and roll? It's a, that's a very good question, and it, it goes to also the question of how I define the occult because in some ways I think that's also where maybe there is some – I took some liberties with that. I guess for me, rock and roll meant not disco. <laughs> so I sort of started, <laughs> I started with what it wasn't, you know. Uh, sure, sure. But it was important to look at sort of the influences of – of rock and roll like gospel and the music, you know, of um, African-American um, musicians, look at the blues, you know, look at these things that sort of made what it, rock and roll is possible. And, you know, obviously even that starts to change when you, you like, we like to think of rock and roll as really that three or four piece band but before you know it, there's synthesizers and there's electronics and there's, you know, mega – I mean even the Beatles, right? The late Beatles stuff, there's – how much of what they were doing looks anything like what would have been considered sort of that more traditional rock and roll that they were playing in, in the early years oh, of their yeah. existence. Very different. Right? So, mm -hmm. so that – it's definitely something that also I had to allow for – you know, some fluidity there, but, but really, yes, I was, I was, I avoided, you know, music that I felt was not part of the essential music that for me begins in many ways with trying to push up against the mainstream to, um, ask different questions about what's possible in terms of what's popular and I think that that is an important when we link that definition of what rock and roll is to a definition of, of what the occult is. And in this case, you know, like I said, it, 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 just like that album cover I described, there's no real monolithic definition of the occult. There is a spectrum of beliefs and practices and ideas that include everything from ceremonial magic, tarot cards, um, even astrology gets lumped in to that as, you know, sort of a, an umbrella term. But I even wanted to go so far as to look at really any non-traditional, non-Judeo-Christian practice that, especially in the 60s and early 70s, became part of sort of the toolbox of spiritual practices. 
So Eastern mysticism, right? Mm -hmm. The I Ching, meditation. And then, of course, all of that is intensely fueled by psychedelic drugs. Mm -hmm. And so to to say what was the occult in, say, the turn of the century with things like theosophy and the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn – is very different to say what was the what did the occult look like in the 1960s, right for right. Um, for the counterculture. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, you know, we've been doing a, a series of episodes about magic for several years now because it's a big topic and it kind of falls outside the purview of what's a monster per se, but totally within the purview of how to critically think about things and sort of the cultural impacts of various belief systems. So lots of monstrous characters along the way too. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And and this fit right in there. I mean, it was like theosophy and golden dawn to new age, to Eastern religions, which are completely mainstream in their own countries, but are treated as as foreign here and and esoteric here. Um, It's, Oh, it, you covered it all. It was very impressive. What I really liked was how you took it from its earliest roots in the origins of the music and then showed the effects of the various occult traditions as they came into play. So you started uh, very early, not just with Robert Johnson's legend, but also with the sort of the, um, the, the religious traditions behind that. But can we talk a little bit about that? Because I think the, the sort of devil at the crossroads uh, has become such a big piece of folklore that um, it's important to sort of clear that up if you can. And I think you did a good job in the book. Yeah, I think it's sort of the Ur myth, right, of rock and roll, right? It's the primary myth. What's interesting about that, so there's a couple of things. So it's the original story probably wasn't attributed to Robert Johnson. That's a later phenomena. I my understanding from the research that I did is it was really a fellow named Tommy Johnson that that story was first about. And it was probably his brother that helped perpetuate that. And Tommy Johnson's story of sort of selling his soul at the crossroads had to do with this sort of um, really amazing falsetto voice that he had rather than, than playing the guitar. And so that was sort of what the gift that he was given. So, so there's a couple of things at play here. So first of all, you have African-Americans in the United States, which are decidedly Christian, right? And their Christianity is something that was given to them or offered to them by white, essentially white slave owners who get, made Christianity a strange justification for – what they were doing and by offering this sort of hope to the slaves that they if they if they behaved as it were that they would be able to go to heaven and essentially serve their masters in heaven as well right but that's sort of the promise but these but these people who you know were taken from their homes in Africa didn't just suddenly kick aside the religious traditions that they had with, had at the time. And so a lot of that stuff gets transported into even their Christian practice. And so you have these two Christian experiences for 
slaves. You have the the Christianity that they are taught by, cult, you know, the white culture and the churches, and then you have the private worship that they did, and and when I mean private, I mean really done in secret which incorporated a lot of the practices and rituals that they already knew from these earlier African traditions. And that includes things like the circle uh, movements, you know, sort of move in a circle, the idea that the gods sort of um, inhabits you, rides you, and you get sort of the speaking in tongues comes out of that tradition in some ways. So if you look at the the sort of the true African American Christianity of the slave, it is very much imbued with the practices that were about worshiping these other gods. And so the stories of things like the devil at the crossroads that come out of African American culture at the time were uh, in many ways sort of a mishmash of many different myths, often having to do with these other deities, one being the god Legba, who is a sort of messenger, almost like a Hermes-type god at the crossroads who acts as a mediator between the world and the other, the other gods. Mm-hmm. And so it was more likely that that crossroads legend already had its roots, right, in these earlier African traditions. But the sort of Christianity sort of turns it into something else. And so it's, it's, it, it's very hard to extract those two things from each other. But suffice it to say that the devil at the crossroads isn't Satan of, you know, paradise lost it's this other un, this other god that in many ways was still part of if only unconsciously you know part of these people's um sort of internal mythologies right mm-hmm. um but it also has to do with the way in which any other religion especially those that were seen as primitive were turned in those gods were sort of turned into the devil right by the christian um communities mm-hmm. i think the first time that i heard the urban legend about a, a rock star selling his soul to uh to satan for fame and fortune was uh attributed to jimmy page i think of the zeppelin um so it seems like it's it was a quickly appropriated by white rock stars as well uh do you talk in the book about just how many times this particular urban legend has has come up because I've just heard of it so many times. Can you tell us about some maybe some of the uh, rock stars that this has been attributed to? Well, I think it's more not so much that they that there's the, the crossroads specifically, but rather that they have made some deal with the devil. Yeah, some kind um, of in pact. some form, right? There's some pact. Yeah. And Again, that, you know, if you look at some early, there's some great videos on YouTube of sort of a lot of this, a lot of live shows from this time. Let's take an Ozzy Osbourne 
when he right out when he was doing his solo stuff. And there are these these great this great video of him sort of up on this throne, this huge staircase with these you know giant uh, cannons behind him that shoot sort of these flaming explosion you know with smoke. And he keeps the makeup. He comes down and he's carrying his staff with the upside down cross on it. And he has his robe, you know, and it's this. I mean, in some ways, it's like a shamanic rite, you know, that's taking place. <laughs> and I really do think that in many ways, the audience is really transformed in much the same way that would happen in a in a community where the shaman is sort of bringing, you know, the god to life in that way. But if you ask him in the moment, so of course, he's going to be accused of all the things that we know he was accused of. And the satanic panic is a big part of that we talk about also. Yeah. But if he, but after Stip, there's some great interviews with him, you know, or after, and he's saying it's all just it's all just fun. Like, sure. You know, this is just part of this is part of the show. But at the same time, that fun really is transformative, I think, for both him and the audience in the moment that it's happening. Mm-hmm. And so, if we want to say, if we want to define magic in a literal way, that's the magic that's actually taking place, right? There's really a a shift in consciousness. So you have these accusations of, you know, selling your soul to the devil. Mm -hmm. But in the moment that you're actually communicating, you're having that simpatico moment with the audience, it can really feel, right, like there really is something taking place. And when you add to it all that mythology and all that rumors – uh, you know, it, it's again, it's hard to separate what's literally real about it and what's happening in terms of, of people's consciousness. Yeah, it reminds me very much of the psychodramas of uh, the Satanists, modern Satanists. Yes, indeed. Right. <laughs> There's something almost magical about music itself, isn't there? I mean, the way it can sort of change your brain state. And, and when you add in this imagery and the human need to find meaning in things, you, you talk about it in several ways and in, in several places within the book, how people looked at the album covers and I guess later at music videos and found all kinds of meaning, whether they were the intention of the artists or the directors or the art people who put the albums together or the marketing department. It kind of doesn't matter what the intent was because we all bring our own baggage of meaning and our own ability to find meaning within those things, right? Exactly right. And I think that that's part of why there's something really special about rock and roll, especially at that time. I mean, part of what we're talking about, though, I don't think can be duplicated in the way that it that it was then. I mean, look at some early videos of Led Zeppelin and Robert Plant in this just incredible Dionysian moment, you know, to try to do that now, it would look like it was a put on or it would be pretentious to try to do that now. Mm -hmm. But something about it then, it was just the perfect moment for all of those things to come to bear. And yes, it's it's happening in the, at the concert, it's happening on the album cover, it's happening in with the lyrics that that have per, could perceive to have multiple meanings. But then you have a band like Led Zeppelin that goes so far as to actually engrave a quote from Aleister Crowley on the inner groove of Led Zeppelin 3. Right. So they knew what they were doing. Right. They were perpetuating an idea 
that for them, and I think for Jimmy Page in particular, was was very important and meaningful to him at the time. At the time, <laughs> right? Yeah. But that's not to say that it also didn't only help elevate all the rumors and myth- myths around them as being something that was satanic or demonic. Uh, I just wanted to add too. I remember reading in a, I think it was a John Lennon biography years ago about how uh, a student who'd attended the same school that John Lennon had gone to when he was a, a kid in Liverpool had written to him and said, oh, uh, I'm a student of this teacher, Mr. Whatever his name was. And uh, he uh, forces us to look at Beatles songs and to to write analyses of them and interpretations of them and, and tells us this is what this song means. And so apparently John was just very annoyed by that and then ended up writing I Am The Walrus. And, um, yeah, that, that he really wanted to confuse and confound people who had their – interpretations of these songs but certainly we were talking about just making meaning and uh how we all do that with using the beatles as an example of what you just said there's this amazing moment um in that film that came out i think in the mid 80s called imagine which was a documentary about john lennon and there's some footage Mm -hmm. that they have some home movie footage he's on his estate and there's this guy Mm -hmm. walking around trying to get in and he looks you know, very much like an acid casualty of the 60s. And he's walking around <laughs> and he's try- and, and Lennon fi- finally goes out to him and he says, you know, what, what can I do for you? And the guy says, look, you know, why are you writing about my life? Like you're, you're writing songs about me. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, consciousness, philosophy, UFOs, ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose. It kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our yeah. whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Don't confuse the songs with your own life. 
I mean, they might have relevance to your own life, you know, but a lot of things do. So we met, you know, I'm just a guy, man, who writes songs. You know. Yeah, I, I figured that if we met, I'd know, just by reading But know what? It all fits. Anything fits, you know, if you're tripping off on some trip, anything fits, you know. Look at you, say. Boy, you're gonna carry that weight for a long time. Did that was just that's Paul saying that. Yeah. Also, but that belongs to all of us. He's thinking about all of us. Remember that one? Um, you can radiate everything you are. You can penetrate anywhere you go. Yeah, I was just having fun with words. It was an, literally a nonsense song. You know. I mean, Dylan does that. Anybody does it. You know. They just take words and you have you stick them together and, and see if they have any meaning. Some of them do. Some of them don't. Um, it was nice mm-hmm. to the guy, but there is that there is that part of that that we so desperately I mean this is an, an, an extreme example of that of this this poor guy, but I don't think it's an outlier in some ways mm-hmm. of that desperate need to find meaning in these lyrics and all the ways in which it can go also so awry. I mean this is I think in many ways, one of the problems that can come with the occult imagination is that it's just in many ways, you know, layers and layers of symbols that seem to be pointed to some greater reality, but they just keep sort of piling. There's kind of a schizophrenia potentially inherent in all of this, right? In that symbolically speaking, Right. In the ways in which we try to find meaning in these things, because you really can't, you know, as much as I would like to say that there are moments when the universe seems to glitch out, you know, and there seems to point to something that um, presents itself as being beyond the phenomenal. You can't construct a cosmology that's stable around any of those things. Right. You can't do you can't replicate it. You can't you can have experiences. You can't make yourself have them. You can try to test them in some ways, like near death or these kinds of things, but they're impossible to replicate in any way that can make a, give us a full picture of the way the universe works, right? According to those principles, and so I think that part of that, if if you're already and if you're already going into this, into reading these lyrics and thinking about this music, and then with that occult sort of imagination fired up. You know, mm-hmm. this is the this is the trouble you get into, and so I I love that story that he would purposefully, you know, just create some nonsense right to to sort of prove the point. I think that that guy uh, breaking into his estate was a that incident was a kind of foreshadowing of what happened to him with Mark Chapman as well. Absolutely, I mean that's where it turns deadly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we're seeing that, you know, I don't want to take this into a whole different thing, but I think we're seeing that misreading of things, you know, right now with the um, incredible increase of conspiracy theories and and yes. in dangerous ways, you know, in really dangerous ways. So this is all, you know, but but on the other side of it is what can be really beautiful and fun and thrilling about how these ideas have sort of, you know, had an impact on this music. So, for example, the Beatles – Yes, very much interested in transcendental meditation. In I know that uh, George Harrison used the I Ching uh, to help him and inspire him to write certain songs. 
obviously LSD was a part of their toolkit of, you know, inspiring things. And I think that the Beatles are also a really good example of if you are somebody, if you're an artist, a musician, and the music that you're making is really pushing against boundaries of what is considered sort of acceptable or what is considered normal or mainstream, and that's your art and that's your life, it only makes sense that if you are looking for a spiritual path that you would turn to things that also feel as if they are maybe a little exotic, pushing up against what is normative, not traditional Judeo-Christian ways of thinking about how the world works. And so it seems perfectly right to me that a band like the Beatles would look towards the East, you know, for um, a way to make spiritual meaning match in some ways with the music that they were making. And then that happens in some really incredible ways with George Harrison bringing the sitar in, mm-hmm. into the music and his relationship with Ravi Shankar. And George Harrison, of course, becomes in many ways probably the most devoutly religious of all the Beatles um, in terms of his relationship to uh, Hinduism and Hare Krishna movement and things like that. Well, I, the, <laughs> while I was reading the book, it reminded me of something that happened years ago in 1997. I was in Atlanta going to work, and I had my Ravi Shankar CD. I was just getting to know his music. I had like a best of Ravi Shankar, and I had the CD on the on the dashboard of my uh, Suzuki Samurai. And I was heading to work and heading north, and the uh, the place where I worked was at like a a phone company corporate headquarters, and I had to turn, I had to take a sharp right to go to work. And just north of there is the High Museum of Art and the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra and all that cool art stuff. And when I turned right to go to my corporate job, my Ravi Shankar Sita flew out of the case and rolled on down the road towards the High Museum. And I thought, well, that's, <laughs> that's some friggin' symbolic moment here. Exactly. It's like, I am out of here. Yeah, it's like, I'm going to the arts. You're going to corporate crush, you know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So that was all brought to mind while reading the book. But... <laughs> cover a lot of artists and I, I especially want to talk about Black Sabbath but the why we're talking Beatles I, I thought it was really interesting how as you kind of go through you talk about various parts of their career and you get to the point where uh, Charles Manson uh, gets the Helter Skelter movement and talk about things that the, they could not have possibly expected uh, there's an outcome um, do you want to talk about the influence of Manson on maybe the satanic panic and how that affected the way music was uh, perceived by the uh, cultural conservatives? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, a, that's this moment that has both really, you know, incredible literal historical implications, but also incredible figurative ones insofar as that Manson and that moment was happening at the close of the 60s when you have really in many ways a disillusionment with what people thought the Aquarian age was going to make possible. The war wasn't over. The LSD use was, you know, this sort of charged spiritual transformative drug was being replaced with heroin 
and speed and, and other hard drugs. And, you know, I mean, it was in 19, I think, 67 that the they had already called the death of hippie in in Haight-Ashbury, right? And so we were already seeing signs that things weren't going how people had sort of hoped, you know, give peace a chance and all you need is love. And these are all the Beatles songs that became these, you know, signs that you would, they were flags that you would wave. So we start to see that that's falling apart. You can see that even in their music, which is taking this very strange and somewhat darker turn. The White Album is an incredibly dark record. Even, you know, I we mentioned Revolution 9, which is, it's sort of a horror show of a song, right? And yeah. so, you know, it, it seems to in many ways just be evoking culturally in many ways what people were feeling. And so Manson, this terrible thing, not only does this terri- these terrible murders happen, but they happen or at least they are explained to be happening because this person was reading into these this rock and roll band's lyrics in a very particular way. And that gets into that false reading, right? That sort of occult reading of uh, rock and roll band songs as if it somehow is you know a secret message of about something that you must act on mm-hmm. and so it becomes in many ways i think it was easy for people to also blame the beatles for that right and so even though they didn't know how they were to blame we always wanted to blame rock stars for all that was going wrong with the youth in America anyways, right? Mm-hmm. And so it was all of a piece where you can see it both happening, just this cultural shift out of the 60s into sort of the sort of darker part of the early 70s, which was, I really think, a time of just great depressive cynicism around the failure of that 60s Aquarian dream to actually manifest and then you have that happening in this really horrendous and, way with these murders. And Manson was uh, had connections to the Beach Boys as well. Didn't he? Yeah, he was a musician. He has a rec- he had a, made a record, and I mean, it's amazing when you when you look at some of the stories about who knew who and who was hanging out with who and the par- these parties. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it, everybody was everywhere. Right. And he was probably this kooky character and they helped him make a record. And who was to know what was going on in his head? So I I think we talk about this a lot on the show is this concept of apophenia, finding weird connections. And so you have this from people, you know, in the listening audience, to the Beatles finding connections and hearing things that were never intended by the artist, but they see the symbolism and then within the murders of, of, of Manson himself, there's these occult elements. He, he was trying to kick off a race war, which seems horribly familiar right now. Um, mm-hmm. he, he believed that uh, something, something similar to the hollow earth theory. I, he, he had a lot of things going on. And then the murders themselves, he, he kills Sharon Tate and uh, several others, including uh, Lee, Lino. Is it Lino? 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 Lino and Rosemary LaBianca. 
Because uh, so you're going to get in trouble for this because Manson himself didn't actually kill No, his family. Kill let me, let right, me correct right, that. Right, right. Aside from right. the death of Sharon Tate, Manson's family is how it's actually written here. Manson's family also kills uh, – but he kills the La Biancas, and, and the wife's name right. is Rosemary. But Sharon Tate was married to Roman Polanski – that's who, right. Who directed Rosemary's Baby, and she was pregnant. So a Rosemary yeah. and a baby died in the murders. It's really weird. And yep. then and then you've got the Dakota Building, which also ties to the Beatles and to Roman Polanski, because in the Dakota Building, you've got the site where both Rosemary's Baby and John Lennon were shot. But the question is, okay, so we could we can we can map out these fantastic connections there, right? right? Which are true in the way in which they're connected. Mm-hmm. And now we can try to draw all kinds of meaning out of that, yeah. which is what we our our tendency is to do. And what we end up but we still don't end up with an answer. No, <laughs> right? not at all. No. Right? no. That, that's what's amazing about yeah. it. But um, and but, so if you are a band sort of in the middle of that and all you want to do is just make music, right? Mm-hmm. Smoke a little pot. Or a lot. <laughs> or a lot. You know, be, be with your families, ride in your giant white limousines, right? And you're being constantly barraged by the press and by fans about this stuff that you have absolutely no control over, no interest in, no knowledge of. And it mm-hmm. all stems from one song or two songs on an album that by the time it happened you're you're already past because you're working on the new music yeah yeah right um and i think though that for the beatles that they really got the brunt of it in some ways that i think other bands were able to ride towards more playful successes like ozzy osbourne and black sabbath and led zeppelin you know a little bit later yeah 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 you know, it's funny. When I was growing up, you know, I, I grew up in a very fundamentalist family, so I was very leery of so uh, you black. Were, yes. black <laughs> no, 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 not at all. I was, I was afraid of of, of Black Sabbath and uh, of Ozzy. And like later on, maybe, maybe when he I, I was, he did a song with Lita Ford. I, I forget uh, somewhere around that time. That was late eighties. Um, that's when I first started like paying attention to him. But like you know, since then I've listened to tons of that stuff uh so i you know i'm a late comer to the old stuff which is weird but black sabbath in particular i love the title of the band because i love the movie black sabbath um and uh i was and that's where they got the title yeah right, exactly I mean, that's where they got the name of the band like holding them <laughs> but but then you listen to mr crowley and you're like, oh, that's so dark. And then you actually read about it, learn he's named Aleister Crowley, and was pretty specific about the pronunciation of his name. Does does Ozzy not know? Like, what's what's going on there? Is it all BS? Is it all marketing? Yeah, I mean, it's also how much did he even read? Did he did he actually read Magic and Theory and practice? Yeah, me thinks on his not. Days off, yeah. I, I don't think right. So he <laughs> picks up on this. I mean, I think for. Um, you know, I don't want to switch gears, but I do think that for Jimmy Page, it was a much more serious interest in that. Oh, yeah, yeah. In, in that right. material, right? But for Ozzy, for Black Sabbath, I mean, the other thing about Black Sabbath, which is if you really listen to the lyrics of their songs, they really are like moralists. I mean, the devil in the devil, the Satan that spreads his wings isn't what they want. They're accusing warmongers of making that happen. They're not themselves calling upon satan right 
Yeah. So there's all this really interesting ways in which, you know, a band like that is using those images not in a worshipful way, but in a critique of American culture or Western culture, right? But all you have to do is say the word Satan in the song and that's it. It's over for you. One of the most shocking things for me as a, uh, a, a reader and researcher is learning how many of the books th- about demons and demonology are written from a Abrahamic control right. position, like as Absolutely. in use the power of God to control the demons and get your work done. Right. You, know, you know, it's like, well, that's a <laughs> shocker. I didn't expect that. <laughs> yes. I mean, the truth of the matter is, I mean, all of those texts that you're talking about, there wasn't anything at the time, really, if you're looking at like medieval and Renaissance magic that has anything to do with the devil or Satan in any form. In fact, it's towards, like you're saying, an almost Judeo-Christian um, intention. So there was this – there was actually an idea that if the magic that you were doing was in service of the divine, it was okay, even if you were conjuring demons. Yeah, it, it's actually a strong parallel to this, which is the – a lot of the esoteric and, and occult references here were not – designed for evil but because they were outside of the of the sort of religious structural system of the people uh in power or i guess cultural power it was perceived as being evil even if its intentions were good or amusing or whatever that's right i mean even today's the temple of satan that does a lot of the pranks and um has the baphomet statue and all of that uh, they often will describe themselves as being atheists around Mm-hmm. You know, the belief in a literal satanic deity. I don't think we can get out of this uh, this topic um, and not talk about Elvis. I think we need to mention him, <laughs> how he was inspired by hoodoo. Can you tell us a little bit about that? It's a pass-through from the church that he grew up in, the Assembly Church of God, which itself was drawing from gospel which itself, again, is bringing us back to these sort of earlier African traditions, right, that make its way into this practice. Um, And there's this really great interview that somebody – that Elvis did. Somebody asked him, you know, the way that you move, don't you find that, you know, awful and um, you're just helping to, you know, bring the devil – into the world with that sexual dancing. And he said, what are you talking about? This, I learned this in my church. This is, <laughs> this is how we worship, right? This yeah. is, this is that there's an, also there was a, um, at one of those churches, um, I think maybe not an assembly church, but one of those, um, like a Pentecostal church, there's a minister who was quoted as saying, um, when, when trying to get his, um, congregation to sort of pick up the energy of their worship he said, we can't let the devil have all this good music. You know, so <laughs> they wanted that. They they were charged by that. <laughs> what would now be now we understand was in many ways sort of pagan energy. <laughs> you know? yeah. And I want to make sure that the listeners know this. You you hit on all kinds of fascinating themes here uh, with uh, Crowley, Thelema, the Golden Dawn, Kabbalah or Kabbalah. I always mess that up. Um, and. We just won't have time to touch on all that. But I do want, before we go, I want to mention, uh, you talk a little bit about the Illuminati, and that has blown up since your book came out. So uh, do you want to 
say anything about the sort of contradictions between the playful influence of the Illuminati and the way it's being perceived by the right? First, it's important to know that, yes, there really was an Illuminati that were actually sort of, um, you know, uh, advanced Masons, I guess, who really were interested in a uh, very liberty-centric notion of mankind and, and humankind, right, that um, they – there was – I don't – I mean the history of how that became part of a vast conspiracy network is all the same ways that Masons also themselves are accused of that. Um, but uh, the, the, the actual order didn't last very long, but all of that becomes tied into – this notion of a new world order, which every you know, we also have to know that what, whenever people say any of these things, Illuminati, new world order, they're also maybe without saying it, are also saying the Jews, right? That's always <laughs> that's always in there. I, I read a wonderful thing. Uh, this woman said that she loves being Jewish because she gets to be part of conspiracy theories from both the right and the left. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I um, keep hearing uh, the uh, like people calling Soros a Nazi. Like really, really, yeah. Okay, come really, on. Yeah, come on. he's really like the dog whistle for anti-Semitism mm-hmm. right now. All you have to do is mm-hmm. say his name for you know that's what people are doing. In any case, we yeah. need to actually I think extend. I, I had a couple more episodes for our magic series I wanted to do, but we probably do need to do one on the Illuminati itself as a as a solo thing because it it comes a lot of what we know of it comes from a a, a book that is pretty much a, a, a conspiratorial nut job book uh, called Proofs of a Conspiracy. And it's from 1797. And then, um, so that's almost 1800. And then right around the 1900s, we get the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. And Zion. It, yeah, right. and it's like, are we, every 100 years, it seems like we get a unkillable conspiracy book. Well, now we have yeah. the Q stuff. Yeah, which yeah. Is, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Uh, so anyway, so th- these things run in cycles, but then they never mm-hmm. die. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you would think that, you know, what's interesting about things like the protocols and the other book is they didn't have the internet and that stuff still disseminated yes like fire yeah. you know i mean it's mm-hmm. it's really incredible but so in terms of the you know there, there's two things again that are at play here there is those that believe that the music industry is secretly run by the illuminati to send secret messages into our children's rooms to control them Right. And to ultimately bring in a new world order. And then you have um, musicians who use those symbols to, I think, playfully mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. Uh, generate that rumor around themselves. Yeah. And I think sometimes, though, they do it in a way that's um that's really smart i mean i said you know when we tried to define rock and roll i will say that i'm guilty of talking about madonna quite extensively in the last um uh, chapter of the book but i will say that there's this really amazing moment where she did the super bowl halftime show and she comes out on this throne with that you know almost like a horned crown being pulled by what appear to be sort of like Egyptian, you know, slaves. And it's a spectacle that is about 
this, you know, goddess, new world order power that is right there. Millions and millions of people are watching this. Madonna knew very well what she was tapping into, right? Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean she's part of the Illuminati. (laughs) It just means that she is a really, really smart performer and marketer of herself and her brand. And, you know, the very next day, there were websites going over every minute and every inch of her performance to show all the symbols, to show all the ways in which – and again, what's amazing about it is it still really doesn't explain anything about Like you still can't create a cohesive understanding of the universe or the government or anything with all of this except to say that somehow there is this secret power that wants to control us and Madonna in that moment was the queen, you know, of of this. Well, this makes me think too of uh, backmasking and we we didn't even really get into that and a lot of bands playing into that, that initially it was a subjective thing and then – a lot of bands were doing this deliberately, putting messages into their music. Yeah, and why wouldn't they? I mean, first of all, it must have been really – can you imagine, though, being in the studio, how much fun that would be to do that? Oh, yeah. You know, and then Absolutely. to put out the rumors about it and to play off of mm-hmm. that. And then when a, when a reporter asks you about it, to be able to kind of shrug knowingly, you know. <laughs> Creating legend. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so besides – us telling re, uh, listeners to to buy this book. Is there anything else that we haven't asked you about that you want potential <laughs> readers to know about? No, I mean, I think that, you know, I would say again that all of this works in many ways. Well, first of all, you know, I do want to say, yes, I do believe that without the occult imagination at play, the trajectory of rock and roll would look very different. It's impossible to understand. It's impossible to even know what David Bowie's output would be if he hadn't himself been interested in this material and found ways to incorporate it not only into his own spiritual life but into his performances. You know, actually, I, you, you mentioned Bowie. It shocked me because I, I always thought of of him as being uh, mysterious and esoteric. I didn't really think of him as being a cult, but I especially didn't think of him as being in a sort of cocaine-addled fear of the occult. That was really interesting. Yeah, I mean, he really went off the deep end, and he talks about that later when he got clean, about he was almost embarrassed about it. Um, You know, he also, in the end of his life, you know, became very spiritual, especially around Buddhist practice. And um, But he also was sort of a master of using symbol mm-hmm. and myth mm-hmm. oh, yeah. and 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 I really do believe that he really is the great rock and roll alchemist. I mean he really transformed himself with each of those roles mm-hmm. and really shaped I mean again I, I I talk about this a lot but I think it's important. So Crowley defines magic as the art and science of causing change to occur in the world according to will. It's sort of a paraphrase, right? And then later you have um, Dion Fortune sort of put a gloss on that and she says magic is the art and science of causing change to occur in consciousness according to will. But let's look at Bowie, somebody like Bowie. Doesn't he – isn't his music 
actually cause change to occur in the world, <laughs> you know, um, in ways that are just we're still I mean, music today. It's what would what would pop music look like if it wasn't for his influence? Yeah, and so absolutely. there was a sense that I think for him that, you know, there was real a transformative power in bringing to bear all of this in his in his music. Yeah, you could say Bowie's an alchemist, but it was uh, Jimmy Page and Robert Plant who turned lead into gold. Boom! Yeah. What's um, <laughs> I was feeling a pun coming on there. <laughs> we normally would ask, you know, what's your favorite monster? But you've been here before and you already answered that question. I don't know if you remember what you said. I think I said Frankenstein's monster. I couldn't remember if it was that or the golem, but I, I, yeah, that sounds right. Frankenstein's monster is definitely. Although um, I've been particularly um, thinking a lot about, for some reason, the creature from the Black Lagoon. Well, we all have ever since uh, The Shape of Water came out, I think. Uh... Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just great. I mean, if even if, if you look at that footage from that original film, the underwater sequences are astonishing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They really are. Oh, yeah. See, there's so much I want to keep talking about because you talked about The Devil Rides Out, and that's just absolutely one of my favorite oh, horror movies. Movie. Yeah, so. And actually, uh, Christopher Lee said that was his favorite character. He finally got to sort of play this good guy. Yeah, no, it's good in stuff. In that movie. And he really, yeah, that's one of his favorites. Yeah. All right. So, what I guess I'm going to ask is our final question is what are you working on now? So, I actually have a book coming out, but it's actually an anthology of sort of pulp, um, old pulp science fiction and fantasy stories that are um, so the story is that in the original Dungeons and Dragons Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Dungeon Master's Guide written by Gary Gygax and company that came out I believe in 78 79 Gary Gygax includes something that he calls an Appendix N which is what he describes and lists as the books and stories that influenced him and sort of when he was developing this game, these were the things that for him inspired him. So Conan stories, H.P. Lovecraft, Fritz Lieber's, um, Freaking Jack Mouser Vance. Stories, yeah. <laughs> Jack Vance, all of that stuff, exactly. And so this is my attempt to anthologize um, those stories. Wow. Um, right. Uh, there's an introduction and an afterward by um, Anne Vandermeer, uh, Jeff Vandermeer's wife, who is um, also a great editor of her own right. She edited Weird Tales for a time and works at Tor Books. I'm not sure she's there now, but she was an editor at Tor Books. And that's going to be out um, by uh, from Strange Attractor Press, which is also distributed by MIT Press. So that will be out okay. – um, fairly soon. I'm also working on a module for the game. I don't know if you are interested in if you play RPGs or interested in that world. Um, but there's a very popular game called Call of Cthulhu. Mm, no, I haven't uh, heard of it. Before. Based no, just on kidding, the, just kidding. <laughs> uh, based on the HP Lyle. Life, of course. Yeah. And um, I'm writing um, a module, actually, an adventure for that, which is actually about a golem. So, will, will that be going okay. through Chaosium? Yes, it will. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Very well, cool. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. And it ties yeah. into what we hope is an upcoming episode on the uh, Monster Manual. So that that's very cool. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. We loved having you back. Yeah. Thank you. That was really, thank you. really interesting. Uh, yeah. Thanks Great so topic. much for having me back. Monster Dog. 
You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with Peter Biebergall, author of Season of the Witch, a grounded yet poetically written examination of the role of occultism and magic on the culture of rock and roll. A link to his book and a ton of songs and additional reading are in the show notes, and I hope you can check those out. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindle, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Look, I'm not racist, but you look good for your age. She was asking for it. You're crazy. That's so gay. Have you ever wondered why certain language has the power to offend? It's often difficult to recognize the veiled racism, sexism, ageism, and other isms that hide in our everyday language. Monster Talk co-host Karen Stolzno's new book, On the Offensive, sheds light on the derogatory phrases, insults, slurs, stereotypes, tropes, and more that make up discrimination in language. Each chapter addresses a different area of prejudice, race, and ethnicity, gender identity, sexuality, religion, health and disability, physical appearance, and age. Drawing on hot-button topics and real-life case studies, and delving into the history of offensive terms, a vivid picture of modern discrimination in language emerges. By identifying offensive language, both overt and hidden, past and present, this book uncovers vast amounts about our own attitudes, beliefs, and biases, and reveals exactly how and why words can offend. You can find your copy of On the Offensive through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or your local bookseller. Monster Talk theme music is by Pete Stealing Monkeys. Thank you so much for listening.
This has been a Monster House presentation.